Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. I'm readjusting our start time because it has been recording for about half an hour now. It's all right. It's always, <laughs> it's always best not to tell me when we're sorry. Are we ready? All right. All right. All right. We're at 30 after. Let's start this. Let's pretend like <laughs> this is this is weirder when I don't have a it's it's a little bit. When you don't have what? When, when, when there's not a mission, when there's not a, a, a like a like I'm going to. Well, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to tell us who the fuck Diocletian is. That... Because if it's not the guy from Gladiator, I don't know anything. He is not the guy from Gladiator. Whoa! <laughs> Which is actually, that, that leads us actually kind of into where I want to start. Uh, one of the goals with recyclables is I want us to notice all the things in life that we can recycle. And I think history is very recyclable. And like everybody who's a fan of history has their like, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. History doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. I guess our pithy comment is history is recyclable. I see that in myself, in that very much like you're commenting, when I was younger, my entire notion of the Roman Empire was kind of built on what I heard in church as a kid, and the little bit I got from like school and Where's Waldo books, right? <laughs> so like, I thought I thought the Roman Empire was this monolithic, unending thing. It was all gladiators, and then eventually it turned into the church, and the 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 the, the barbarians showed up, and they sacked everything, and that was the end of Rome. And then I got older. Bye-bye, Rome. Yeah, and then I found out Rome was actually, like, it wasn't, it was much more a civilization and a culture than any one style of government or thing, and that it lasted a long time. I, I used to think specifically Rome was America in the ancient world, and that Greece was, like, the, the Britain parallel, right? That, like, oh, the Greeks must have taken over, something bad happened to their empire, and these upstanding Romans came along, which is... Like, I think kind of kind of how school wants us to see it a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And as I got older, I recycled that viewpoint. And I found out that, like, Rome recycled itself. It started off as a kingdom. It became a republic. That republic became an empire. That empire eventually dissolves into uh, what some historians call historical anarchy. Or, or military anarchy. Which Ooh. is, yeah. So we're going to get into all of that in a minute. But the... Where's Antifa now? Uh, that's gonna be. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh no, no, you're 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 looking ahead in the notes. It's great. Um, as we go through this, Rome recycled itself. They they changed what they did to survive and adapt. But a third important uh, group of people to remember, a third way to look at recycling. Uh, a little sidetrack before we get to Rome. The founding fathers were huge nerds about ancient Rome, like like big old nerds, right? If we ever do an episode on the American Revolution, we'll talk about them, right? But Jefferson, and I think, I want to say it was Madison, got into an argument because one of them thought Julius Caesar was the greatest Roman ever, right? And the other one's like, he destroyed Rome! He was a monster! And they like they got into like an argument at a dinner over like whose superhero was the most, like which, which person in the Roman cinematic universe was uh. more... 
<laughs> right. Uh, another another example is there was uh, Washington. Part of the reason people respected him, part of the reason he just got voted in almost like universally, was because he turned down power. And people compared him to this old Roman general named Cincinnatus, who became like the dictator of Rome, took over Rome for a minute, and put down power afterwards. Was like, I don't actually want to be in charge. I just wanted to save Rome. I'm going to go farm now. Cincinnati has a hockey team, right? Yeah. It's not the weird, creepy guy, right? No, Gritty is Philadelphia. Okay, okay. And, and, and two, like, I don't think we have a Philadelphia audience yet. I don't know, whatever. But but my point is, they were, they were the, the founding fathers were big fans of Rome. Because Rome started out as a colony on a continent and they got tribes there to fight each other so that they could expand their nation state. Mm. Right? Uh, and they had most of their prosperity during an era of republic that was based on slavery. Whoa. Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar, but <laughs> the founding fathers were essentially colonists who showed up on a continent. Who we're got just a reboot, folks. A little bit. But that's what I'm saying. That's that's one of my notes. History history repeats itself. It's to just a, a bunch of shitty reboots. But the, the part... The, the, the thing about the Founding Fathers being such big fans of Rome is they were a fan of this specific era of Rome where the Republic got various nation-states to fight each other, right? Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, they're just, they're just a fan of this specific era. They don't really pay attention to the era before or the era after, right? They see they see the fact that like the Republican senators of Rome were fighting tyrants and all this, and they're like, oh, that's that's who we are. We're fighting a tyrant. And they don't pay attention to where that ends up, which is the military anarchy, which leads to Diocletian. So what I want to give you now is like a thousand years of Roman history in about 15 minutes. All right. Yeah, I think we can do it. Because it, it, it makes the point of how Rome recycles itself, and it also gets us to Diocletian. So, Rome, according to their own mythology, started with Romulus and Remus, who were just these... Weren't they raised by wolves? Yeah. They, they suckle at a she-wolf's tit, and, and are, uh, uh, which, is, which is a repeated motif throughout a lot of mythologies, is you, you gain strength from a packed animal, right? Uh, but they're also, in, in particular, uh, come from Troy to... Uh, the Italian peninsula, like across the, the ocean there, right? And then those two grow up. So they, they come from ancient Greece. They have that kind of pedigree as far as sort of mm. these people are concerned. And then they build a city and they fight each other. And I think it's Romulus ends up being the founding, founding member of Rome, Romulus, right? And the thing is the kingdom of Rome and a lot of ancient kingdoms don't function kind of our, our perspective of kingdoms, I think, is skewed by the Middle Ages and the, the part where it's like a big castle and you've got various knights and whatnot. Some of that exists, but mostly what a kingdom is, is you have a very defensible city. Rome's built on a hillside, so you have to go up a, a hill or up a sheer cliff to get to it. It's surrounded by rivers, so it's harder to get in that way. And then they've got walls like right before the edge of it. So it's it's a very defensible place. And there's a series of like seven hills around it. So you have to go up hills, down hills, and then up another hill and deal with rivers to get to Rome, right? So Mm. there's a lot of natural barriers. And that's how kingdoms function in the past, is it's the city and kind of whatever you can keep defensible, right? And, And in 
Roman history, they go through this period called the Seven Kings of Rome. And, and each one of them is supposed to be a tyrant, and they're probably, there's a good chance they're apocryphal, which just means, like, there's a good chance, like, the king that insisted people's wives sleep with him wasn't actually a specific dude, but it's, like, a behavior of bad kings, mm. right? So the Roman Empire is founded, or, or Rome, the city, starts in uh, 750, approximately 753 is, like, the most, I think that's, like, their notes on it. But the Republic starts in 509. So there's a like 150-year-ish period of kings of some amount of dynasty, and then it becomes a Republic, right? And the, the important part there is that it's still run by rich people. Basically, the, the founding fathers of the city, the most important people with the most land or whatever, take out this most tyrant king and realize, like, look, we can't just keep kinging it up. Every time someone's like, I'm the absolute authority, they turn out to be an asshole. So instead, let's just share absolute authority. Let's, let's, it, it, first among equals kind of thing. And it works for a while. Uh, and part of the reason it works is that they have, they have like slaves to do shit for them. And they, they don't have it right away. Part of the, one of the founding tenets of Rome is kind of Romans never say die. They're almost never conquered. And when they are conquered, Good luck sleeping, right? Like they're not gonna they're not gonna take it down. And they also do this other insane thing, which is when you go to conquer them and you leave because you didn't, they follow you home and take your shit. Like they're like <laughs> And they're actually pretty smart about it because they're like, we don't wanna be in charge of you, but we don't want you to mess with us. So you just pay us a tribute and we'll leave you alone. You'll just remember who's really in charge here, right? Mm. And the other thing about having a republic is you get you get a multitude of ideas at once, right? The nice thing about a singular, singular executor is that, like, it's it's one person making choices and there's no fraction, right? Like, it's just do what that guy says. Mm-hmm. But if that guy's wrong, that guy's 100% wrong and he hasn't examined the other possibilities. If there's, like, 20 of us, one of us being wrong means there's 19 other dudes who are right. So somewhere along the line, we're going to have a more, like, a better strategy and plan. Somebody's going to see something somebody else missed. That kind of thing. And the issue with the Republic, though, is that it is it, it creates a middle class in Rome, which hasn't really existed. That was the other thing that really gave Rome kind of a unique advantage over other kingdoms. One is they've got, like, a nice terrain, and if you fuck with them, they just take your stuff and you kind of owe them. That's a novelty, a weird sort of clemency meets also kind of like, I don't know, authoritarianism, mafia style, like, mm-hmm. give it to me. But at the same time, they're also, like, there's people who are doing okay as opposed to really well or not well at all. And there's more of them than before because they create a standing army, right? And and at this time, like, especially especially in the Grecan age, like in the Hellenistic period, um, those city kingdoms, so like Athens is a city kingdom that way. Mm-hmm. It's just that city in the surrounding countries. Uh, and, and Sparta are culturally Greek, but their 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 nationality is Spartan in Athens, and they go to war, and it follows a sort of seasonal pattern. So like you don't have war in winter because like it's you might die or whatever. I don't I don't I'm, this isn't about warfare specifically, right? Mm-hmm. But but they, it follows a kind of seasonal pattern, and the Romans are the first people to realize like. There's a down period, we can train, and then when war does happen, we just automatically win. We'll have time to put you back to your harvest, and you can send that to us, right? 
And so what this does is creates prosperity within Rome as they as they conquer these other tribes, and they also keep the tribes fighting. Eventually, they they kind of take over the whole Italian peninsula, and and there's a weird form of Roman supremacy that comes into play, where you're either Roman, Latin, or barbarian. And mm-hmm. Roman is just anybody specifically in the city of Rome, and Latin is anybody who's Roman but from one of these other places up and down the peninsula. And like, I'm not. I'm not doing all the history justice. I'm just giving us a, a mm-hmm. quick broad stroke. So the Republic falls famously because of Julius Caesar. I recently read a book called The Storm Before the Storm that does a good job of explaining that really what happens is a lot of norms that aren't codified get broken. So a lot of people do a lot of people don't show their tax returns when they run for president. Mm. So there's a lot of cultural norms to what elected officials can do and people start breaking them. And one of them is there's this office called dictator so that like when you're at war and you've got 20 people trying to come up with a strategy, they elect one person who can nominally say, no, we're not doing that. Yes, we're doing that. Let's go. Like the barbarians okay. are at the gate. Right. And this dude takes dictator for life Eventually he turns it down, like eventually he retires. But by the time Caesar comes along, this guy has normalized the pattern so much so that Caesar isn't so much doing anything that radical. He's he's just he's escalating it more than it had been normed before. Other people take the office and refuse to turn it down and are like, I'm gonna kinda be the boss of Rome. Because what happens is you have the Senate, which has all the power in the city, but then you start getting these generals who have power a lot of power from the army because they're conquering territories and they've got a bunch of they've got a bunch of highly trained soldiers who have had hundreds of years perfecting formations, strategies, how to train, equipment. And like that's that's a, a real advantage to Rome as it grows, is it has a sense of its own history. So even if those seven kings, like way before the Republic, aren't real, you learn about them and you know, hey, that's what we're trying to avoid. And Caesar's big mistake was that he tried to make himself a king. His successor, Augustus, his uh, grandson who comes along, Caesar does his shit in like 44 BC. Augustus comes along in 27 BC. And there's a lot of complication about him. But he's the guy that really looks at the situation and realizes there, there's an executive in charge of the empire of Rome, of all of these kingdoms we control that we've conquered or these tribes that we owe us money or whatever. Because they, they kind of follow a... Uh, the Roman army kind of follows like a mafia mentality where what they do when they conquer you is they're like, we don't actually want to do anything, but we know they're scarier people. So you're going to pay us. And if you don't, we'll be the scarier. Mm. And that's, and it's kind of accepted. And it's like, like graft is built into the whole system too. So before Augustus, one of the things that'll happen is like, you're a, there's a region out there that owes taxes. They owe 50 taxes. I pay the government 50 taxes and i am now the tax collector for that region and i charge that region 200 taxes and guess where the other 150 taxes go stay with you yep but i have to pay a dude 25 taxes extra in addition to the 50 taxes i paid you to get that job and i have to pay the emperor 25 tax tribute as well it's built in but it's not formalized and so what Augustus does is he kind of, he does a lot of things, but my favorite thing that he does is he looks around and he's like, nah, we should just systemize this. Like if, let's just call that, let's let's make sure you can't bilk me out of whatever by just having it on paper. And another thing that he does, the way he gets away with being emperor is he doesn't say, I'm better than you got. He says, I'm the first. I'm the first among equals. I'm first in line. Everybody get in line. 
right? I'm the first among equal in which all of you are equal to me first. But, like, if I present that more magnanimously, if I'm like, no, no, I'm, we're all the same, like, we can all, anybody can be emperor. I'm just emperor because I'm the best, so everyone do what I say. Then it's not do what I say because I'm the best. It's, you know what I mean? Like, it's a different feel. And I guess this figures out, like, oh, you can rule an empire this way because so many other people are going to do that same thing given the opportunity. They're going to say, hey, respect me, I'll respect you. Like, you've got both that that kind of cut us in on what you're making. And, like, we're equal. I'm just the most equal. Right? <laughs> and it sets about this period from 27 BC to 180 CE called Pax Romana. So the Roman peace? Yep. And it's considered Roman peace because guess who's at peace? Rome. Rome, exactly. Is anybody else at peace? No, Rome is at war with Persia. They're at war with these people called the Gauls, which is roughly like a lot of Northern Europe. They would call Rome, tell me if this sounds familiar. Rome's, Romans would look at a people and be like, oh, you're all the same thing. So you're all, you're all barbarians or you're I, all Spanish or you're all like Egyptian. No, I don't see it. And so the Pax Romana, uh, it, it, I'm skipping over a lot of history to get to here, just, just to clarify. That's people. fine. I'll tell people some good sources at the end. But the, the main thing is it's a good era for commerce because Rome owns Egypt, they own all of Greece, they own parts of North Africa, and they own a great deal of Europe. They've conquered it. I say mm-hmm. owned, but I mean they're just conquered. And, and one of the really cool, one of the smarter things Rome does is they're like, you already know how to govern I just want the taxes you get, right? So that graph thing from before, Augustus kind of, again, formalizes it, but on a on a lower level, it's not really formal. It's just formalized enough at, on top that, like, Augustus or whoever's emperor can keep an eye on it, and then everyone underneath them is supposed to keep an eye on it as well, but sometimes it gets out of hand. And uh, by the... There, there's this era called, like, the Five Good Emperors, and the Five Good Emperors basically figure out that the key to Imperium is management. You're not really you're not really the boss, you're just in charge. The the Empire is a machine that's gonna continue to move and your job is to make sure it continues to move and put people in place where it will. The bad emperors, uh, historically like Nero and um who's the one with the Caligula, right? They're considered bad for because the Empire suffers under them. But the main thing is they don't put good people in good jobs. Right, mm. or if they do, the Romans. Uh, uh, this book, the Ten Caesars, does a good job about going into the female role in in society. And the the other deal is like Nero and uh, in, I think it's Nero. One of them in particular um, lets women do a lot of roles, and Romans are super mis- misogynistic. Like they're very like like just just picture a bunch of frat boys, right? right. And you kind of have the Roman Empire and. Or at least the Roman like soldiery and the people who are who think they're important, and they don't like when women are manipulating the politics behind the scene, uh, and because oftentimes what's happening is they end up being more empathetic, right? Because one of the how dare they? One of the smart things the emperors do is they figure out if you feed the poor, the poor will, will support you. Besides having a middle class that's created by these soldiers, right, uh, and and farmers and whatnot. That's another thing Rome does is it will when it conquers places it will give territory to Roman citizens to farm or to take up jobs. So if you're if you're a free person if you're a Roman citizen of pardon me if you're a Roman citizen of whatever criteria you'll be given a job automatically and then you you're you're white personed in 
Like, that's really the only closest analogy I can put it mm-hmm. as. It's like, oh, you're Roman. You can be a, a farmer now or a whatever. The good emperors figure out they're oftentimes popular with... They're considered good because they're popular with the people and they're popular with the Senate. Uh, but the Senate loses power over this time as the emperor consolidates more and more power and kills off more and more of their rivals and bullshit, like, mm. purges and what. Because one of the beauties of being emperor is you can just decide... I'm judged during an executioner because I have to be for the good of the Roman people. Like, like I just so kind. Yeah, and and uh, another thing that they do that's kind of smart. Augustus starts the trend with Caesar. Is they deify themselves, but not until death. Mm. Right. So a lot of a lot of you'll you'll hear in like Persia and in other. Uh, other empires that are, are more that don't last as long. These people call themselves kings of kings and and give themselves god names. And what the Romans figure out is like, yeah, but people question godhood. If I'm only a god once I die, you don't want to kill me because that's when my my true power comes. Because the Romans are very superstitious. They very much believe in in gods as as not just uh, ethereal concepts, but as very real people or places or things. So Athens is one of my favorite examples because Athena is the goddess of Athens. So if you go to Athens, in theory, you're just, you're literally visiting the goddess Athena. She's a boss ass bitch. Yeah. And she is. She's got all the cool, she's got all the cool wars. She's got the smart wars. She invented the plow. She's like, she only has one story of being a petty bitch. She turned someone into a spider? Yeah. And that's like it. All the other gods do that to everybody all the time. I saw, I was listening to something about Athena being really, oh, because she was really kind of Odysseus, even though Odysseus, oh, someone wanted to fuck my wife, great, I'm going to murder everyone. <laughs> yeah, and he's, uh, there's there's a really good book, I, I'll look at, I'll tell you about it later. There's there's a great book that puts the story on the perspective of, like, uh, Calypso or whatever, like, like a, a woman that's normally scorned in the story, and it does a great job of, like... Nah, like, like turning Medusa into the hero. Well, yeah, I mean, Medusa is like such a rad representation of like a woman who suffers from sexual assault and like comes back to be more powerful. It's and it's really interesting. And that's built in because in in the it's funny because that's a great example of how we interpret gods and godhood. Because originally she's actually punished for the crime of being assaulted. Oh yeah. That's that's what she that's why she's made a gorgon is because she's supposed to be a, a sacred virgin of some uh, kind and then she's assaulted and uh, so she's violated her sacredness and one of the gods punishes her with and, snakeheads. Yeah, and so the male patriarchal interpretation is that but as we've got come along like people are like no, she did that to defend herself and it's a reclamation of power and blah blah blah. Yeah. But, all that is to say that the Romans see their gods as very physical 3D things. So you go to Athens and you're visiting Athena. But when you go to war, you're also, Athena might be there. She might see what's up. She might favor you. So they uh, they, they they know the gods exist in a way that's, like like I was telling you uh, off mic, they, the Romans know science. So they know if you throw a thing, flies up, it's going to come down. They don't have language for what gravity, they don't have uh, uh, Newton's formulation but they know pull back a string arrow flies away they know how to make aqueducts and shit but the science is new but you have tradition and tradition says if you do this before you go into war you're going to win a battle 
if you pray to this god, then you guys are going to have a really fortunate harvest. And you have so much tradition that outweighs, has more of a gravitational force than some of these new ideas. And Romans are very big traditionalists. They want things to be, once Pax Romana occurs, and there's also a golden age of the Republic that kind of occurs nominally before Caesar, but uh, maybe a few generations. So Romans are fixated on these times that used to be and that they want again. And they think that like the reason they're not around is because they did something wrong and the gods have forsaken them. Or, or they think that the Romans were doing something right and the gods were pleased with them. And that's why they had these prosperous eras. So when the Pax Romana comes to an end about 180 after following like the five good emperors, um, what ends up happening is the Romans don't think of it necessarily as they have kind of a, a split view. They're thinking either we're doing something wrong or we're not doing something right. And that's why all this shit is going on. All right. Okay. And after the five good emperors, basically what happens is it used to be the Senate would affirm Imperium. But because there's these kind of big, there's these big armed forces, just big roving armies out in the field fighting these battles that would, the emperor would go and deal with a situation. So the, the bulk of the army is in Gaul, which is like France, Germany, that kind of area, right? So he'll go out there and help deal with the problem. If he dies in battle, some general proclaims himself emperor, or the army is like, that guy's emperor, he's the boss, yeah! And then that guy has to rush back to Rome and get the Senate to confirm it. So at the end of the good emperor phase, the military anarchy phase kicks in. He's using a lot of air quotes, folks. Just... He's throwing out air quotes like it's Andy at a parade right now. Just want to make sure that everyone is aware of the amount of air quotes being thrown around well, this room right now without any regard for if they're audible. That is a good point. Well, because I got, I, got, I, got I got uncomfortable with how often I say quote unquote or air quotes when I talked in the other one. Well, you're, all you're doing is making it worse. All right. It's also, it's also this part gets a little tricky because it's like the, this part... My understanding is historians have a hard time because the there's this thing called the third century crisis, and it honestly only lasts like fifty years. But it's so bad that like kind of the buffer space around it is also bad. Like it, it takes up this whole period, and this fifty year period they go through twenty six legitimate emperors mm-hmm. in fifty years. How many illegitimate emperors? Shrug emoji. <laughs> like Thank the, you for at least saying that one out loud. Yeah, what happens is a general does a battle and all of his soldiers are like, oh man, that guy is the shit. He should be in charge of everything. And then either he has to rush back and get the Senate to approve it, or he has to go fight some other dude who's doing the same thing. And what ends up happening is they have civil war and sometimes they do fight. And sometimes what will happen is people will meet up and there'll be a little bit of a skirmish. And then the soldiers will talk and be like, no, we'll kill our boss. Your boss is better. Your boss is promising better pay. We'll all defect. Kind of. This like, sounds like a good argument for unions. I just. Kind of. And uh, that's that's why it's called military anarchy. Because nominally, the military is running things. It's going around fighting invaders, fighting itself, putting down usurpers. But nobody is really in charge of the army. Like, it's just doing its own thing. That's so wild. 
And that's 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 roughly where our story starts. Let's let's pretend because it's like a twenty nine minute mark. I feel like that's a good time to pretend we have come. Okay. Right? Here, I'm gonna download it real quick and. Okay. Gonna say. All right, are we ready? Hold on, let's okay. give it a little time. I want us to have it just start at eight. Like, Harriet, what was that about? What? But we gotta get back to Diocletian. The pandemic of my heart. Diocletian, born Diocles, which means son of Jupiter, and that will be. We'll get to why that's important later. Wikipedia has him written down as Gaius Aurelius. Valerius Diocletianus. That's too many words. That is. Um, Gaius is kind of like Gaius Julius Caesar. Gaius, uh, uh, there's a bunch of them. It's like John. It's like the Roman, like, that guy's in charge. He was born, uh, he's a fellow Sagittarius. He was born December 22nd, probably sometime between 243 and 245. So they just say 244, but it's... It could be any of those three. And, spoiler alert, he'll die December 3rd of 311. So he has a good long chunk of life, right? About 60, about 70 years. But the weird part is that he... It's always interesting to me when people have their birth date and their death date so close. It's just mm-hmm. always always quirky. Uh, Diocletian Aurelius Valerius Diocletianus is actually... a His name is a great starting point for, for what's interesting about the guy. Now, he is famous for two, two things in particular. He's famous for, for ending the third century crisis. So he's famous for putting an end to that military anarchy that we had discussed. And we'll get into to a little bit more about that in a second. But he's also famous for being the only emperor to quit. To just be like, I'm peace, I retire. Is he kind of like, uh, what's, what's that president who did like all of his shit? And it's like four-year term, then die like Holy shortly after. Crap! Diocletian might be Jimmy Carter. No, not Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Don't even uh, American presidents, because I do need to look this up now. Deal with it. You're not even my real dad. Uh, so James K. Polk. I think it's James K. Polk. Oh, the the yeah yeah yeah. There, there's a bunch of them that are like. He's considered the last pro- strong president. Oh, since until the Civil War. Well, here's here's a problem we run into with Roman America that we should get into before we actually get into history, which is we oftentimes see parallels between ourselves and Rome because they were a colony from another empire, right? Like they were they were the the thing about the Romulus and Remus myth. That's definitely proof that what what Greek cities would do is they'd realize we're kind of at capacity and we've got enough slaves and whatnot, so we'll send some people. Elsewhere, to go make a new place. Yeah, and call it a new city. And these colonies were nominally Greek, but the Romans were the first one to take like take a whole different attitude on things, or, or maybe not the first ones. I shouldn't. I if I say the, the one that stuck. Yeah, they they definitely stuck. And part of the reason they stuck was because they were able to, much like early America, figure out all those things that we discussed, the tribal stuff and whatnot, right? And we see that parallel because the Founding Fathers, being such fanboys of that era, were like, that's what we're doing. We're doing a Rome, right? Because the, the big thing about Rome is Rome lasts from 753 B.C. to, like, almost 500 A.D. That's almost a thousand years. That's too long. 
America hasn't even like we're almost at 250 years. So that's that's four Americas at least, mm. right? And arguably, you could even say arguably America has a pre-civil war government that is dramatically different than its post-civil war government, which is dramatically different than its 9/11 government. So we ended in the third century crisis and the third century crisis is actually multiple things. The biggest and loudest thing is this military anarchy where the army is deciding who's running the, the empire based on who they want to run the empire. And mostly that's based on how well they're going to get paid. So what happens is a lot of times, like I said, they fight and then they kind of compare notes and whoever's like, the best-paying boss sometimes ends up being the winner, lo and behold, and then his army's bigger by about a third. What do you, what do you, what do you know about that? <laughs> right. This other thing is uh, Roman civil identity is changing. Rome has spent a long time conquering places, and the thing that they did with that, the Latins that I mentioned earlier, where they're like, well, Latins are Roman, but they're a different kind of Roman. Eventually, everyone in the peninsula is kind of Roman, and everyone else is German or, or, or Persian or Egyptian or whatever, but they're also gaining a certain amount of Roman citizenship or a Roman identity. So, like, Roman supremacy, air quotes, is taking over in a new way, and you're trying to get closer and closer to the hierarchy of, of Roman affiliation, right? Okay. And then the last thing, this thing that's not as loud, but it's happening quite a bit, um, and the military anarchy thing, I should clarify, a lot of historians call it a succession issue, because there's no clear way of defining who is emperor. There's no written down rules anymore, because mm -hmm. Augustus was trying so hard to pretend, like, this is just, this is just what I get. Like, this is just how it is. Like, this, this is chill, guys. This is how it's always been. Remember? remember Don't worry what, about it. Yeah, yeah. Remember how my godfather Julius did this? I'm just following what he's doing. My grandson, Trajan, he's going to do the same thing. Don't worry. It's a good system. No question. I'd kill the guy that has questions. <laughs> but this other thing is not my area of expertise, even less so than warfare. Like, warfare, I can get the general idea that, like, more people better, more tactics better, that sort of thing. Economics are not my strong suit. I hate money. I, I wish it didn't exist, right? I wish it was just, like, can I have bread? Cool. Here's a thought. Do we not like economics and do we let not like money because we realized it's a bullshit? Like, I liked math as a kid because I could find the answer. I hated English a lot because there was what the teacher wanted versus what I thought was the answer to the question. With money, it's like the rules are constantly changing or like anything can be explained away in defense of capital a lot of the time. So it's like, it's hard to enjoy a subject where it feels like... That makes sense to me because there's a difference between, like, business classes are different than classes about capitalism. Like, but everyone thinks it's all interrelated. Like, that, that, that's one of the interesting things about some of those Yale courses is that they're like, like, they'll be like business ethics, business practices, business and capitalism as like, oh, these are all different relationships. Okay. I haven't watched them all, so maybe it's the same guy saying the same thing. I highly doubt it. But the, the economic problem Rome is facing is that their coinage is literally gold, right? Literally mm -hmm. silver, literally copper. And what happens is we, we melt it down, 
and we make the coins in accordance to whatever the emperor said. And then some of that gift comes back to the emperor. Nominally, a lot of the time, the emperor is worth about half of the whole empire. Like, like half the money is under his control in some fashion. And that's part of what makes you emperor. And part of why you want to be him is you're just the richest dude. And, and You're what, the 1%. Yeah. And Rome actually really... Um, Side note, Rome really benefits and and lives by the benevolent billionaire myth. Mm. When you're rich, you're so rich, you're never, ever, ever going to spend all your money. And in fact, there's a good chance like your kids might not spend all your money. So what you do is you give them money, and this is that thing where the religion plays an important part. You give that money to various temples or religions, and they do certain public works that are also giving credit to you. So, like, let's say you're a priestess in the Temple of Goddess. I give you money because I'm super rich and I, I, I don't know if the gods gave it to me or I don't know if I have it because the gods want me to have it. But I need to thank the gods for all this money, so I'm going to give it to you. You're going to take the money and build your temple, you're going to pay your priests, your sub-priests, your acolytes, and you're going to feed the poor who you want to maybe work for you and do all of this labor and what, right? And so, to the Romans... I'm I'm great because I gave money to the gods, but also I they I must be getting that money because I gave it to the gods. If that makes sense, like the, that cause and effect, that thing where like they can see that you're a hard worker, but tradition says you got your money from something divine, and the fact that you have a relationship with the gods that's in whatever capacity different than mine. So then, on the converse of that, if you're poor, it's because you're lazy and it's because the gods don't want you to have money. Exactly. But there's not the same kind of poverty we know. Because you can... I mean, the, the weird thing historically, every time there's cities, there start to be homeless people. Especially especially metropolis, like metropolises like uh, Rome that have suburbs. Because once there's housing, there's the possibility of housing scarcity. But what ends up happening is people work together and find places. Like, you find a cave outside a town or whatever. So it's not the same kind of homeless because... And Rome in particular is really good about feeding people who are inside of Rome. Being a Roman citizen inside the city of Rome grants you certain privileges. Like, you you get a subsidy on bread. uh, or, Or even, I think at this point, by the end of the 3rd century, there's a kind of occasionally free bread, occasionally... Uh, the circuses were free for sure, and that was that nice. was that was that was part of that benevolent billionaire thing. Is the emperor pays for the subsidies on the grain, and he pays for the circus, so that the emperor is giving you these. Yeah, that's why you build them in civilization. But he's also giving you those things to distract you from the fact that he's the one who's holding on to all the gold that decides where all those things go. So you guys don't pay attention to the fact that he's doing that too. Yeah, and you get better points in civilization. Exactly. So. Certainly back around the problem... I'm being difficult, folks. No, you're fine. The problem with all of this is money is being devalued. The, the currency is literally being devalued. There's less gold and silver to make more coins. But you're getting... Like, like you'll put it around a lead outside or whatever, right? Like, like, you're doing different things to devalue the money so that you can say that you have more of it. But the problem is people aren't dumb. Your, your gold coin isn't weighing as much as one gold coin used to. Or they crack it in half and they're like, hey, this is hollow, bro. Like you. Right. So what ends up happening is, again, I'm really bad at the economics understanding. But people start to hoard the good money, right? So the pure gold coin you keep in your vault or you keep in your pocket and you spend the bad one. 
right? Which makes the good money even more scarce, which makes money harder to come by. And the money that you do get is worse or more likely to be counterfeit, which decreases the value, which means you start reverting to like barter more and more, or you have outrageous inflation prices or, or just all kinds of crazy right. stuff like that. Like the wear of wheelbarrows full of money in Germany. Yeah. Post-World War One. So there's, there's similar issues. And, and the general populace isn't entirely aware of this. The elites are aware of it, especially. And that leads to the elites getting even richer because they're like, oh, the emperor is about to devalue the money. Let's make sure we keep all of our best coins to ourselves and spend differently. Insider trading, folks. It's yeah. always been around. And at this point, that's actually really the only value to being in the Senate is you get to perpetuate being rich. Oh, that doesn't sound at all like so, current day America. So before Diocles, like I said, uh, son of Zeus, Gaius Aurelius Valerius Diocletianus is an interesting choice of name because before Diocletian, there were two dudes who were really important to Diocletian. The first guy is named Valerius. Valer- or Valerian. Valerian. My bad. Valerian was a big deal because he... Rome is going through this cycle of emperors where it's basically, um, I like to think of it as mafia bosses, way more than imperium, because they, they figure out who's in charge of the territory, they take it over, then they just murk that guy, and then whoever's the most powerful and rises up in the ranks does the same thing to them. So it oh creates this weird sort of hierarchy that everyone knows there's a, the possibility of advancement. You just have to decide how vicious, how political, how you're going to do it. And the weird part is, like I said, the army is functioning pretty well in this. Like, they're not winning a ton of battles, but they're not losing a ton of ground either. So, like, Valerian is a big deal because he is probably, he's one of the few Roman emperors who's ever kidnapped from battle. And to be emperor, like I said, you have to be a general in the front. He gets kidnapped, he... There, there's a lot of apocryphal stories that he's used as a slave or that he stuffed or that he's... I think he might have had gold poured on him, something like that. Mm. No, 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 that's an earlier dude. Anyway, he's a big deal because he's the first guy to sort of have a plan out of all these generals. Because most of the time what happens is these guys get to the top because they just want to be at the top. And Valerian does it because he kind of has plans. And he's the first in a series of guys who wants to go back to the way Rome was. Because you grow up, Rome is generational, and those generations impact each other. So the, the, the seven kings, that generation of people led to the Republic. And the people that le- lived in the Republic kind of normalized Republican living, which led to generational like a comfort with it to think this is how it's always been. It hasn't always been tyrants. So when it gets to Imperium, uh, after the Republic kind of falls and becomes this new thing and gets reordered, everyone's used to the Empire. There's this old standard that everyone wants to get back to, but right now things are crazy. But eventually we're going to get back to that. That's the status quo. The status quo is there's an Emperor, there's a Senate, there's an army, and, and Roman supremacy. Right? Okay. But the status quo has changed over the course of of this 50 years of people changing so that there's finally these people who miss that. And you see something similar like uh, uh, post-revolutionary France. All of Europe goes to war for like 200 years. And there's these periods where they stop fighting basically because like two or three generations of people are like, we give Can up. Can we stop fighting yeah. for like five seconds? And it's, I mean, that's... 
historians like sometimes they have like a great main view of history where they're like one person did it all and sometimes they're like oh it was the people and mass and this person was emblematic of this thing that was going on i kind of have a, a both i think it was both valerian was the first dude to be like i have a plan after a whole cycle of this but there was a certain amount of people being like can we just have Pax Romana, that was pretty dope. Like yeah, that it was, was really nice when we weren't fighting all yeah, the fucking The money time. was real. It was great, right? Mm-hmm. So Valerian gets kidnapped. It leads to, through a bunch of more fighting, this other guy comes along named uh, Arulian. And Valerian getting kidnapped kind of galvanizes the Romans, I think, in a way where they're like, it was their 9-11 in a really weird way where mm-hmm. they're like, oh shit, even our emperor can fall. Like that can, like, like it's one thing if our guys kill our emperor it's another thing. If someone else kills them. Yeah. And that kind of motivates, that that creates more motivation. And uh, Valerian was the first guy to also start using clemency again. Because a lot of how Caesar comes into power and a lot of how Augustus does is they're like, look, you're my enemy and you tried to stand up to me and that's great. But like, we could work together and just make a lot of money. Right? We right. could we could empire, bro. <laughs> like, So they make a lot of, and then after that, if you don't reconcile, if you mess up, then they kill you. And, like, Caesar was fairly popular because he would forgive people who fought with him. That's, no, and I mean, it's kind of, ContraPoints has that really good video about justice that she just came out, it was part one, and she talked a lot about how, like, if your justice is constantly retaliatory, it's like, it just creates, like, blood feuds, and how, like, you have to figure out when you need to be strong and, like, actively act on someone, and then you need to figure out when, like, gotta pick pick your battles literally and figuratively and valerian is the first guy to start to do that this guy after him arulian uh he ends up getting the title savior of rome restorer of the world to give you an idea of of like how accurate was that uh pretty it was good to rome it was accurate to the Roman opinion of the universe, right? Like I said, they I, I could easily parallel like I'm I'm using a lot of our like make Rome great again kind of mm. phrases on purpose because yes, there's a parallel, but the thing is the the founding fathers, those dudes being huge nerds, they didn't think about this part. They didn't think about the military anarchy part. They were worried about like, oh, what if what if George Washington decides to pull an Augustus and become the emperor of America? They're worried about that. They don't think about the part where, like, people are dying of starvation because the army is roaming around the countryside fighting itself or fighting off invaders and torching land along the way. And Arulian is the first guy to be like, look, I know you wanted to kill me, but instead of killing you, you're a really good general. How about you just general with me? So you'll just do your job and I'll be in charge. And it creates, I believe, it creates a culture of kind of professionalism in soldiery that hasn't been there before. Because one of the things that really brought Rome into power was their ability to change tactics, right? In addition to that part where they never really admit defeat, even when you defeat them and they go home with their tail between their legs, somebody's coming up with a plan to retaliate, right? Right. And the other thing is that they're not just good soldiers, they're good at a lot of other stuff. Julius Caesar really did conquer, like, a lot of France, a lot of Germany. uh, Crap, what's that famous guy? Dan Carlin. Dan Carlin has uh, one of his... Uh, hardcore histories is about Julius Caesar essentially conquering all of Europe. And the thing that, that really struck with me is that they have impressive engineers. So they build up forts overnight oh, that, wow. that are defendable on like, like that still exist. 
stuff Julius Caesar did that was like, hey, we're just doing this for the week, but it needs to be here for 10 years, is still around sometimes. And that's, that's a superpower that other nations don't have because they don't have the resources. They don't have the, like, they don't have the history of training each other either. They don't have trial and error. So part of never admitting defeat is you're like, well, we did fuck up in that way. So let's not do that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing they do that's, that's pretty wise is they, they recruit. So every time they conquer somebody besides just the gods, like we know how their religion, I think everyone kind of knows their religion was pretty cosmopolitan and whoever you conquered you were just incorporated into the overall Roman mythology. So like all the Egyptian gods had places or analogs inside the Roman pantheon. And they were just like the gods of Egypt and you had to be cool to the gods of Egypt because like that's Egypt's gods, man. You don't want to mess with that. That's what makes Egypt cool, right? Uh, I digressed myself too far. Just a second. <laughs> uh, but part of, part of that is that they, they recruit soldiers in a similar faction. So... When they conquer this area in particular called the Aeolian Peninsula, there's a lot of these cavalry dudes from there that continue to advance. They keep making themselves emperor, right? So they're no longer even from the city of Rome, but they're Roman emperors from this whole other part. Oh, wow. Yeah. The thing is that you do that with everything in your army. So your archers become the best from all of your conquered... Who you, you look throughout your empire and you're like, who has the best archers? Cool, the Greeks do. We'll take that. Who has the best horseback? Cool, the Iulians. Who has the best uh, guys who just stand around and stab each other? The, the Spartans or the Egyptians or whatever. And you, you build your army kind of nominally around that. And then you have base tactics that are Roman. So you can, you can bring your archers with you while you have a cavalry unit and a soldier unit because you've recruited from the best. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And then when I conquer you, if you have something better, well, cool, I used five other things to stop you. The third century crisis sees this weird thing where, like, nationalities get bled into Rome more. So there's more Germans among the Romans. These Iulian guys, the, the, these last few guys are all from the same area, mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, Valerian. And Aurelian ends up really doing quite a bit to save to kind of prevent these things. And, and the things he sets into motion, the thing I really think that he does is he creates a culture of professionalism and competency by showing clemency to people who are good at their job and who aren't just being jerks. And, like, his overall goal is he wants to make Rome like Augustus had it, like the good emperors had it. Because that's the status quo, and he just wants to go back to how things were because that's what tradition says you do. So he manages to do this thing called the Aurelian Walls, the boundaries we know of Rome now were established by this dude. So he creates this new set of walls because this other thing that messed with the Roman psyche besides Valerian is the city of Rome gets sacked for the first time in all of its thousand year history. It's, it's had like 700 years of no one breaching the borders and finally someone does. And that's, that's another thing that kind of snaps all of Roman society to be like, Oh, we're not, we're not doing so good. We had a, we had a January 6th. Whoops. Right. <laughs> And so Aurelian, he sets up the walls, and the thing that's also unique about him is all these other guys are vying for power. He's kind of vying for a job. Aurelian has plans beyond, I want to be emperor. He's like, we need to secure this border. We need to wall up this. We need to set up, uh, he sets up mints uh, around the nation so that, that that currency issue, like, okay, we'll bring in more currency to these mints and redistribute it be fairer and more proper to what we need. There'll probably still be the base and like, I'm going to keep my cut. And that ends up being a problem because as he 
as he really does settle Rome down, these mints start to realize, like, oh, oh, somebody's going to be checking the notes. So they start riots over the fact that they've been embezzling. At the same time, there's a grain shortage, and there's also this problem where Rome... uh, So there's a grain shortage, there's embezzling. Oh, and then there's this thing where the Roman army nominally isn't requisitioning supplies willy-nilly. They're not showing up and, oh, cool, you have a bunch of cattle and we're hungry. Grub. Goodbye. They're giving you something in exchange when they do that. Mm. But the problem is, it's this money that everyone else, that everyone knows is bullshit. So you're you're not even giving, you're already not giving fair payment, and then you're not giving fair kind or tender or whatever. And so it's driving people nuts. So there's no food, there's no money, and the money that is there is worthless. So there's rioting throughout the empire. Oh, and damn. yeah, Aurelian's one of the first people who has like street tactics. He has to like quell inner city riots. Because normally what they do is they just hire gangs to beat the crap out of people to shut them up. So the emperor, like Nero, uh, when there's a big fire, hires gangs to like beat people into order so that like they'll do what he says. Like it's it's a thing. Uh, oh, gosh. It, yeah. Uh, I think I think the behind the bastards about the police goes into that in more depth. But the other thing that Aurelian did that was really important was he started using cavalry and cavalry tactics uh, more and more frequently. And more importantly, cavalry has always been used in the past as like there's been chariots and guys on horses. But our concept, like our idea of a dude in armor barreling down on someone with horseback, uh, it, it really comes into place from this era and. These guys are kind of like fighter pilots, like like jet planes, because they're faster than a person, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're also stronger than a person, not only because you have horsepower behind you, right. and you have the, the momentum of a blade. You don't just have the dude who's super strong. You have the fact that he's coming at you 60 miles, or I don't know, 25 miles an hour, however fast. A fast enough amount. Yeah, that it adds to whatever he's doing, and it's not just one guy. It used to be like one guy could afford a horse. Now we have like a unit of 30 or 40 of these dudes to a tribe that has, like, five of those. And it becomes... Aww, that's so sad. So that becomes a huge advantage to the Roman army. Now, Aurelian gets uh, assassinated, right? And that's why he's not nearly... He restores the empire, but, like, kind of on his way back as he's dealing with some shit. And he's like, he hasn't quite got his things all in order. He's been given the title of of, uh, restorer of Rome, but he hasn't achieved... like, Like, he hasn't sat down. Like, he hasn't been like, alright, I'm gonna emperor it up for real now. Uh, before he's assassinated. And he's assassinated taking a piss. Aww. Now, for everything I said about clemency, when he's not nice, he just, he just kills you. Like, he's like, no, you, I told you what to do, you said no death. Like, mm. that's just what we gotta do. And one of his, uh, personal slave scribe people uh, messes up and realizes they're gonna get killed. So they make fake execution orders for all the guys, for all of Aurelian's best friends, right? And then distribute it on accident, like, oh, whoops, I dropped my notes in front of you guys. Oops, I don't, oh, don't worry. No, you, you're you not supposed to see the, uh, kill you. I don't even know how to read. Does this say kill you? Oh, my God. Oh, how clumsy of me. So they kill Aurelian when he goes to B, and then they find out, like, oh, what? You did what? Like, we're, <laughs> we weren't supposed to? Uh, that wasn't the plan. Like, he was he was chill with these guys. And so that leads to another one of these mild, like, a bunch of people claiming the title. 
before we get to Diocletian. I need to pause. To... Okay. Speaking of. No, you're fine. Thank you for picking up recyclables today. Donations to the ACAST streaming service are, of course, always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.